This morning we'll have the Black Locks leading us in the reading of God's Word. The lesson from the Old Testament is from Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakariah, now it happened in the month of Chesnoth, in the twentieth year, as I was in Sansadabal, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Dura, and I asked them concerning, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant still in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. You and I in my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people, but if you return to me and keep my commandments, and do them for your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and the people whom you have redeemed. By your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. Get him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cut below to the king. In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, 
and the letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. When I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derosion. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king that had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Under the age of 10, and you're born in Austin, raise your hand. Anybody 10 and under, born in Austin? We've got a few here. What about any families that have moved to Austin within the past, or individuals who have moved to Austin within the past 10 years? A fair number. Well, as many of y'all know, Austin is a growing city. In the past 10 years, compared to the last census, last census the U.S. Census of uh, United States Census Bureau most recently updated its list of the most populous cities based on the most recent census data, and Austin made it into the top 10. So if you were born in the past 10 years, you contributed to Austin becoming one of the 10 most populous cities in the United States. Can anybody guess what other cities in Texas made that list? Top 10, Yes. Houston, that's right. Houston was the biggest city in Texas, number four. Dallas. That's right. San Antonio, number seven. Dallas, number nine. And Austin, Texas, sneaking at number ten. The Census Bureau also updated its list of the fastest growing cities, 50,000 people and above. And three out of the top four cities in the entire country are surrounding Austin. Does anybody know what those are? Who said Georgetown? Number one, Georgetown, the fastest growing city in America with more than 50,000 people. So Georgetown, number one. New Braunfels, close. New Braunfels was not in the top five, but it was uh, very near the top. No, that's a good guess, though. Close to San Marcos. What's between here and San Marcos? Kyle? That's right, Kyle, number three, and number four, up north. Anybody? Leander. That's right. So part of the reason we know that Austin is growing is not just that Austin made it into the top ten, but that all the smaller cities around Austin are growing as well. Austin is fast becoming a hub for this entire region. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we look, as we begin the book of Nehemiah. Uh, for those of you who've been here, we've been studying the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We have a new series in Nehemiah, so if you haven't grabbed one, we have these books available for you in the very front. But Ezra and Nehemiah is a story about Jerusalem, this city that's the hub of all these other cities around it. 
And that's what we're going to talk about as Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem in order to help rebuild the city. So please pray with me this morning. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for this morning again. You're so good to us. You've given us your word, your truth. You have not left us alone in the dark to figure out what your plan and purpose is for our lives and for the world that you've showed us. We come before your scriptures every Sunday, humbly asking you to speak to us through your spirit in order that we might receive wisdom and direction in our lives, that we might see Christ more clearly, that we might be able to be more faithful disciples to him. I pray that as we look at the story of the city that you love, the city of Jerusalem, that we might see its relevance to our lives and the life of our church. And we pray that you might encourage all of us, each of us individually, to see our role that you have in the life of our church and our community. We do thank you again for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, last week, I noted the somewhat unfortunate timing that on Mother's Day, we were talking about a passage that had uh, people sending away their foreign wives away from them. And that was, you know, the, mother's, the very encouraging Mother's Day message for all of us. Uh, thankfully, this week we have something that is equally relevant to this day in the life of our church, but I think far more hopeful and has a far more positive perspective. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be having our very first annual congregational meeting under our restated bylaws, and we're going to elect our very first elders and deacons for our church. In this passage that we look at in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 3, it talks not only about leadership, because leadership is very important in the book of Nehemiah. Oftentimes, that's what's going to be preached about Nehemiah. If you hear about Nehemiah in a church, it's what are the lessons of leadership that we can learn from Nehemiah. But at least in the very beginning of Nehemiah, in the first three chapters, we're going to find that Nehemiah is as much about the people and the responsibilities of the people under the leadership as it is about good leadership. So if you remember, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah was a 100-year rebuilding project of the city of Jerusalem after the exile, centered on three main characters. The first main character is Zerubbabel. He is the governor at the very beginning who helps to rebuild the temple. And then we have Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah, Ezra helps to restore the law. And then Nehemiah, about 15 years after Ezra, he helps to rebuild the city wall. So this morning we're going to talk about city walls and gates. And then we're going to talk about the people who helped to rebuild those city walls. So first, city wall and city gates. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, I'm going to read it again for us. It says this, These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th years, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah hears this news, and he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So have you ever received any sort of news like this? that causes you to weep and mourn for days, fasting and praying to seek God for his guidance and his direction. And you might wonder, well, what is such a big, like, what's such, what causes Nehemiah to act in such a dramatic fashion? And the response might sound extreme to us, but if we understand what city walls and gates represent in the ancient world, then I think we'll better understand Nehemiah's response. 
See, having a broken wall and destroyed gates for a city are an existential crisis. It's an indication that all of God's promises, all the great hopes that they had for revival, sending, or going back to Jerusalem from Babylon, all of those promises have not been realized. In the ancient world, cities aren't defined by their size, but by having a wall. So the way that we think about it, see, like, you know, in the very beginning, I said, what are the ten most populous cities? If we think of what cities are, we think of big places. We think it's based on population density, or maybe cultural production. So if you think about what defines a city, typically you're not thinking about having a wall around the city. But that's what defined a city in the ancient world. In fact, the most de- basic definition of a Hebrew city is a walled settlement. Meaning, if you don't have a wall, you're not a city. A wall is what makes a city, not because it establishes the boundaries, but we'll see in our text because it provides three different things. A wall provides permanence, protection, and a purpose. So a wall gives a city a sense of permanence, protection, and a purpose. So first, permanence. The most basic thing that a wall provides is permanence. Perhaps the most famous walls in the entire Bible are the walls of Jericho. You might be fam- I know a lot of the kids are familiar with that story. It's a story where Joshua, as well as the other Israelites who have come out of Egypt who are about to enter the Promised Land, the very first city they reach is the city of Jericho. And why are they afraid? It's because the walls of Jericho are tremendous and enormous. And there's no way that they could ever defeat the walls. Well, what does God do? God says, walk around Jericho once a day for six days. On the seventh day, walk around it seven days, and God himself will bring the walls down. And that's exactly what happens. Well, this story about Jericho that we're familiar from the Bible, Jericho is actually one of the oldest continuous settlements in the entire world. So Jericho has been around for at least 10,000 years. It was inhabited as early as 8,000 B.C. And how do archaeologists know that Jericho was around at 8,000 B.C.? Because it had a wall. Partly, archaeologists define a city in the ancient world based on the presence of a wall. So about 8,000 years ago, Jericho probably had a population based on its size of about two to 3,000 people. Um, so just by way of reference, Tarrytown probably has about 20,000 people. So Jericho has one-tenth the amount of the population of Tarrytown, but it has a wall. So that makes it a city. Jericho is a city in the ancient world, not because it has a lot of people, but because it has a wall, implying that a group of people has decided to settle permanently in one specific place. And for the next 10,000 years, the history of Israel, or I'm sorry, the history of Jericho, is a story of walls that get destroyed and walls that get rebuilt. Walls that get destroyed, rebuilt. But the important thing is it always happens in the same place. Because walls provide a sense of permanence for that city. So walls give permanence, but they also, probably as most of us are familiar with, they give a sense of protection. Walls provide protection for ancient cities. Familiar with the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey? one of the great stories of our Western culture. Why was the Trojan horse necessary? Do y'all remember the Trojan horse? Yes. They had to sneak inside the walls of Troy. Why? Because for 10 years, they had tried to attack the walls by 
traditional conventional ways, siege warfare. But they couldn't do it. For 10 years, they had tried to take over Troy, but they couldn't because of the walls of Troy. Do you know what ancient city did not have city walls, purportedly? Any guesses? What ancient... Sparta. I mean, the kids are they're amazing. They know all the answers. Sparta. Why do you think Sparta did not have walls? Because they had fighters. This is what one... If you know who Plutarch is, the ancient historian, this is what he has to say about Sparta. He relates this antidote. Someone in the ancient world they inquired why Sparta was without walls. One Spartan leader points to the citizens all around them covered in armor, armor, and he said, these are the walls of Sparta. Well, that works if you're a culture that prizes warriors, that trains, you know, elite fighting machines from a young age. But for every other city other than Sparta in the ancient world, in order to have protection, you need a city wall. And not only do city walls provide protections for the cities themselves, but they also provide protection for the surrounding environment as well. The typical layout of ancient cities is not that dissimilar than what I described about Austin today. Right? So you have Austin, kind of the hub, and then all around Austin are a bunch of different smaller cities. Same way in the ancient world. You'd have a larger walled settlement, a city, with a wall, and then all around it you'd have unwalled villages so that in times of trouble or distress, everybody from the surrounding area runs into the safety of the confines of the city. An unwalled settlement is inherently unstable and vulnerable. A city wall provides permanence and protection. And what's true of ancient city walls equally applies to city gates because they really have one piece. And I'm about to read a fairly long quote, but it's really it's a great quote. This is by the scholar who wrote the book on Israelite city gates. And it really captures the importance of the function of these gates in ancient cities. So the quote begins... The gate complex of an ancient Israelite city was more than a mere passage into the town or a defensive military structure. So the idea is you have this surrounding wall, but the entrances into the city through the wall are called gates. But the gate was more than just defensive military structure. It was a civic forum. The wall was the heart of the city. So the heart of the city was not in the center. It was actually at the very outside near the wall. The open spaces of the gate complex hummed with activities. There, the town elders oversaw legal procedures. So it's where the courts are. The courts of the ancient city are at the gates. Kings publicly sat and took counsel, and prophets proclaimed their messages of doom. It's the social square. It's where communication happens. Townspeople came and, bought, uh, came and went, bought and sold, worshipped their deities, were tried and executed. Indeed, most of the town's civic life was centered on the town gate complex. Because of the prominence of gates within the culture, they took on additional significance. Gates were symbolic of things like royalty and independence, of community well-being, of metaphysical boundaries, and of Israelite society itself. For hundreds of years, gate complexes stood as an institution central to the Israelites' social identity, shaping how they interacted with their neighbors, how they governed themselves, how they went to war, and how they perceived themselves. So it's not an exaggeration to say that without city walls, without city gates, you don't really even have a city. Do you now understand then why Nehemiah responds so dramatically to the news? that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
He understands that such a situation means that so many of God's promises in the Old Testament that relate to Mount Zion and his holy city of Jerusalem cannot be fulfilled while the city remains in such a condition. Without the permanence and protection of the city walls and its gates, then the city of Jerusalem cannot fulfill the purpose that God has given to it. So what is the purpose of the city, in particular the city of Jerusalem? We find it in Zechariah chapter 8. Now, Zechariah, he's actually a prophet during the time of the return from exile. So, Zechariah, he's a prophet during the time of Zerubbabel, who mentioned at the very beginning, the first generation of the exiles who returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. And Zechariah is speaking the words of God to the people at that time. And he says this, Thus says the Lord, I have returned. God's come back to his city. I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in its hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. See, the vision that Zechariah gives of this faithful city of Jerusalem is men and women, young and old, all enjoying the safety and prosperity of the city. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So Zechariah tells us that the purpose of the city of Jerusalem is to provide a place that God can dwell with his people. The reason why you need a permanent place, the reason why you need a safe place that's protected, is so that you can have a community of people who will dwell with their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. But by the time we get to Nehemiah, 75 years after this prophecy is given, we find that Jerusalem is not a faithful city. Its walls have not been rebuilt, and its gates still remain destroyed by fire. So the people then, God raises up to work toward permanence, protection, and purpose. So Nehemiah... He hears what's happened to the city of Jerusalem. He prays to the Lord to grant him mercy to this king of Persia named Artaxerxes. And God answers his prayers. It says in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, Nehemiah says to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. In a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress and of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. So Nehemiah goes to the king, he makes his request, and God, through the king, grants it. He says, and the king granted me what I asked, because just like with Ezra, the good hand of God was upon Nehemiah. So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, verses 11 and 12, in verse, or chapter 2. He goes to Jerusalem, and he says he stays there three days. And then secretly, he arises in the night, he takes a few men, he says, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So this is kind of like a secret, covert, nighttime operation to inspect the walls. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode, he goes and inspects all the walls. And then verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of them who were to do the work. Verse 17, then I said to them, do you see the trouble that we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of my God was upon me. 
for my good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And then the people said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So what's happened here is God has granted Nehemiah a desire and a vision to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He secretly inspects the wall, and then he inspires all the people who are called to do the work. And then we read in chapter 3, it's mostly a systematic description of all the workers who helped to rebuild the wall. Um, I didn't print it out in the bulletin, it's fairly long. Um, But basically it goes starting at one gate called the Sheep Gate, and it goes counterclockwise on the entire wall, talking about all the people who helped to complete the wall. And most of it is is pretty basic. It just says, so-and-so helped to build this part of the wall. He built its ga- uh, rebuilt its doors and its chambers and its gates, and then moves on to the next person. But every once in a while, Nehemiah will give us kind of very interesting details, more information about the people who helped to rebuild the wall. And what's fascinating, I think, is that all the additional details that Nehemiah adds, they show us that the rebuilding of the city wall and its gates is a project that requires the participation of the entire community. I think that's what comes very clearly. Everybody has to join in to do the work. The Israelites cannot fulfill their God-given calling to be the place of his presence unless all the leaders and all the people work together toward the common goal of establishing the city and the community. So how do we see that? I'll go through a lot of the different examples. This is the very first example. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Then Eliashib, the high priest, he rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. So from the very beginning, it tells us the very first person who is participating in this work of rebuilding the wall is Eliashib, the high priest, meaning he is the highest ranking religious figure in a religious community. He's the grandson, actually, of Jeshua, who was the high priest during Zerubbabel's time, the very first high priest of the exile community. This tells us that the most powerful religious figure of the community, he rolls up his sleeves and he does the work. Meaning, this is a wonderful example for all the people, and it's actually in direct contrast to what we see a few verses later in verse 5. We learn about some of the people of Tekoa, a city that's, or probably actually not a city, but a village that's a few miles to the south of Jerusalem. Verse 5, it says, Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So on the one hand, we have the example of Eliashib, the high priest. On the other hand, we see the Tekoites, their nobles, would not stoop. Their nobles were unwilling to put the work then I love one of the next specific details that we see in, when we encounter in verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh. He was ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. He repaired. He and his daughters. You see, Shalom also, he's a public figure, a political figure. He's a ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. But we're told that he works with his daughters. I love that detail. We seem to have far more daughters here at our church, for whatever reason. Far more daughters than sons. And what a tremendous blessing that is to our church. Everyone contributes to the work, men and women, sons and daughters. Then we come to the section in verses 23 through 30 where we find out that many people repair the walls and the gates opposite their own houses and chambers. So it says, so-and-so repaired the gate that was opposite, like right across from his own house. Which 
I mean, it makes sense, right? You should be responsible for that which you are most going to benefit the most from. But what this also means is that for 50 or 75 years, the people who lived opposite these gates had not fixed them. And I think the reason is a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? A city wall is only effective if it's complete. So I think what has happened is even if you were to choose to invest all your time and resources to repair the part of the wall that's right in front of you, that if your neighbor doesn't do it, then what's the point? You're not any more safe if you fix your part of the wall if nobody else has done the same. Only when the entire community, all together, under shared leadership and vision, rallies together, is there enough momentum to rebuild the wall in a way that's beneficial for everybody. Again, the lesson is clear. In order to fulfill God's purposes for that community at that time, it requires everyone working together toward a common goal. Nehemiah 3.32, between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So if you read the whole chapter, if you kind of look at all the people who participate in the work of rebuilding the wall, and you see kind of what job they had, this is what you hear. They're priests, they're goldsmiths, they're perfumers, they're rulers, their daughters, their sons, their Levites, who are similar priests that work in the temple, their brothers, their temple servants, their merchants. Notice what's missing. There's no wall builders. There's no masons. There's no carpenter. It's not the people that, who work with their hands that are called to rebuild the temple. Again, everybody does the work. Even if you don't feel like you have particular skills or gifts or talents necessary to accomplish the work, everybody here contributes to complete the task. They do whatever is necessary. What's also interesting, if you look at the complete list of workers, is that you have a combination of people who both live in the city as well as people who live outside the city. So the Tokoites that were mentioned, their town is actually a couple miles south of Jerusalem, which at that time period, at that time period is actually a very far distance. A couple miles is something probably equivalent to like 20 or 30 miles away for us. But they come from their town all the way back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city wall. Why is that? It's because Nehemiah helps them to see that the flourishing of Jerusalem is in everyone's best interests. The idea is that even though not everyone lives within the city, everyone is safer when Jerusalem is secure. There's no conflict between city folk and country folk. Right? There's no divide between the urban and the rural or the city center and the suburban. No, everybody works together for a common goal. All the people come together to rebuild the walls and gates of Jerusalem in order to support the things like permanence, protection, and ultimately the purpose of the city. So I think the question for us this morning is, are you personally invested in the permanence, protection, and purpose of our church in our community? Because the truth of the matter is, like the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem... We need everybody. Everybody is necessary for our church. 
You see, God indeed grants Nehemiah this wonderful vision. Like Nehemiah, he inspires the people. He rallies all the troops for this rebuilding project. But chapter 3 makes it clear that the execution of Nehemiah's vision is dependent upon the people who all come together. In the same way, our church leadership has adopted a vision statement, but the execution of that vision statement is in the hands of everybody in the church, not just its leaders, not just the elders and deacons that we're going to elect shortly, but it's everybody's responsibility. And this is that vision. The vision statement of Terrytown Christian Church says this, We seek to be a church in the center of Terrytown that serves as a community hub where all people can know the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our church seeks to be a church in the center of Terrytown that serves as a community hub where all people can know the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, as I was reflecting on that, what I was struck by is how similar our vision statement reflects the situation of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. You see that? In one sense, yes, like, the city of Jerusalem is trying to build a city wall as protection, right, to keep people out. But it's more than just physical protection for the city because the purpose is to strengthen and unite the city to promote the city's flourishing in order that the surrounding villages might be blessed and strengthened and encouraged. And ultimately, God says that he blesses Jerusalem in order to be a light to the nations. God's plan is that Jerusalem would be blessed in order that the world might be blessed. So too the same with our church, with Terrytown Christian Church. It's not an either or, but it's a both and. If you strengthen the church, then the community and the world will be blessed. You see, we invest tremendous resources into our campus and our facilities. And we'll talk about the budget at our meeting. It's very expensive to have a campus and to maintain it. But why do we do that? It's so that we can strengthen our church and our community, not for ourselves, but in order that we might be better encouraged and equipped to be a blessing to our community and the world as well. The goal is not only that we might invite people in, and of course we want that to happen. We want more people to come on Sunday mornings. We want more activities and ministries to be on our church campus throughout the week. But... Perhaps the even more important goal is that all of us, as we seek the refuge of the church, that we might be encouraged and equipped and ultimately sent back out in order that we might be a light in all the different places that the Lord has called us to be. See, the, the church, God, it's very important that we have a permanent place. And it's, a, it's such a huge blessing that we have that. And this provides protection for, this, this is indeed a refuge. But the purpose that God gives us a permanent place for and a refuge is not to become insular, but it's to ultimately go back out and to share the love of Christ. So remember, keep in mind our vision always that we might be a church in the center that acts as a community hub in order that the love of Christ might go out and go forth. Isaiah 40, chapter, chapter 40, verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please pray with me. Uh, Dear Holy Father, we thank you for this wonderful story. First and foremost, we praise you because indeed your hand was upon Nehemiah. That you were the one who gave Nehemiah the desire and the vision. You were the one who gave the people the ability to carry out the work. Let us not forget that you were the one in control and that you were the one to whom we look to and rely upon to fulfill the calling that you have given us. 
I thank you for the sweet church and community that you have blessed us with. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed continue to deepen and strengthen our friendships and our relationships. I pray that this place might be a refuge for so many people. And at the same time, I pray that as we are strengthened and as we receive encouragement from one another through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might be equipped to go out and to go forth to share your message of love and truth to all those around us. I pray for those who are in uh, the children at school, the many parents involved in various school communities, people at their workplaces and businesses, in our friendships, in our neighborhoods, in all these different ways, Lord. May you help us to be the light of Christ to others. Jesus has called his church to be a city on a hill. Pray, God, that you would allow us by your grace to be a place where your light is indeed shown in order that all might see the graces and the glories of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.